This is number 48 of the quest claiming the marks of Christ. M. Robert Mulholland Jr., professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, wrote a wonderful book I highly recommend for anyone interested not only in spiritual theology or philosophy, but in Christian spirituality specifically. The book is called Shaped by the Word, The Power of Scripture in Spiritual Formation. And I would also recommend his Invitation to a Journey as well. In Shaped by the Word, Mulholland writes this, It becomes clear that there is more than just an idea presented in Scripture. There is an alternate order of being which confronts us. It draws us out of where we are into something else. In developing this theme, Mulholland at one point uh, focuses on uh, Ephesians 5.14 following, where the Apostle Paul writes this to the Christian community in the city of Ephesus. Look carefully, therefore, writes Paul, how you walk. In his repeated use of the word walk in this chapter, Paul is imagining the whole ordering of our lives, the ordering of our very being in the world. In verse 15, he urges the Ephesians, Uh, to walk not as unwise, but as wise people. I like what Mulholland says about wisdom. I, I think it helps get us beyond the notion of wisdom as an idea or being adept at problem solving. In our informational culture, Mulholland observes, we tend to think of wisdom as a cognitive function. We use, uh, as synonyms for wisdom, such terms as intelligent, brilliant, genius. These may be adjuncts of wisdom, he says, but biblically and especially for Paul and his Hebrew tradition, wisdom is the ordering of our life according to the will and according to the purpose of God. Wisdom is bringing all the dynamics of our being into harmony with the Word and becoming ourselves a Word God is speaking forth into the world. You may wonder if I quoted that last part correctly. The Word uh, God is speaking you forth to be in the world, and I am. Moholan argues that biblically, we are each a word God speaks forth into the world for the good of the world. There's a wonderful motto which I first learned in Germany, Werde was du bist, become what you are. The Christian life is about becoming what you were meant to be, what you are, a, a, a spoken Uh, a word spoken forth by God for the love and for the good of the world. Become what you are. So walk as people of wisdom. Then in verse 16, Paul writes something that in the King James Version uh, sounds uh, really a little puzzling. He writes, redeeming the time because the days are evil. 
The Greek phrase which occurs here also occurs in Colossians 4.5. Literally, redeeming the time means to buy up all the time. If you were uh, to go in, uh, in ancient times, if uh, you would have went to a stall in the marketplace that was selling papyrus, writing paper, and you bought up every last piece of papyrus they had, this Greek phrase would describe that fact, that action. There is, of course, no difficulty in understanding advice which urges someone to fully appropriate, appropriate for themselves or to fully buy up for themselves papyrus or apples or shares at Microsoft or Apple stock. But what in the world does it mean to fully buy up for ourselves the time? The confusion is cleared up by knowing that the Greeks had two different words for time. Chronos, meaning sequential time. Chronological time, the time of clocks and calendars. Time measured in passing uh, seconds, minutes, hours, days, and years, or events. The other word for time means the opportune time, the decisive moment, the moment in which everything has come together. Everything flows together to create the right moment, the right season, as when, for example, all the forces of nature and the work of the farmer culminate in the perfect moment for the harvest. Here in Ephesians 5.16 and also Colossians 4.5, as well as in a number of other passages such as Romans 8.18, Romans 13.11, 2 Corinthians 6.1-2, and Revelation 1.3 and Revelation 22.10-11, the word kairos, especially as used by Paul, seems to be a metaphor for a new kind of life a new order of existence. New, not in the sense of recent in origin, but new in its quality. A new order of existence of being in this world, which uh, will only be fully complete when Christ returns. Paul elaborates on, or traces further, the contours of this deeper, this chirotic, uh, that's, uh, kairos is, is the word for this uh, sort of time. Uh, he traces the contours of this deeper, chirotic, mystical Christian existence with several significant phrases in both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 4. First of all, Paul insists that redeeming the time Living chirotically means walking in wisdom, walking in love and in wisdom. That means much more than simply acting wisely or living wisely as it is frequently rendered in English translations. To walk can indicate our manner of life and how we walk, talk and, and, and how we act. But beyond that, it has to do with how we order our lives. Wisdom then is the ability 
to see and respond to things rather than reacting, to see things as they really are, and to order our lives accordingly. But perhaps it is easiest to just quote from a small book I wrote a number of years ago, um, a little book of sanity, Finding Serenity in the Age of Anxiety. Here's what I wrote there. It takes a good deal of wisdom to know whether we are reacting or responding to the problems, troubles, and disturbances that fill our lives. A reaction seems to almost jump out of our own emotional turbulence. A response is a more thoughtful approach. When we respond rather than react to an event or to something someone says or does, we, are, we consider things like whether, we are about, whether what we are about to say or do is in harmony with our own inner values and with the kind of person we really want to be, with the kind of relationship we want with the other person, and whether our words and behavior are likely to be helpful or harmful. A response is more reflective then, more analytical and better able to set aside our own personal issues. The word response actually comes from re, R-E, uh, meaning back, and spondera, 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 to pledge, to pledge back, uh, that is to guarantee or to vouch for our actions uh, for uh, uh, our own behaviors. It is to take responsibility for what we have said or done and for taking uh, a, a moral inventory of our own inner motivations. The driving force behind our speech and behavior. Interestingly, a spondee is a pillar supporting an archway. A response supports the structural integrity of our own inner life and of all our relationships. Most people live their life constantly reacting to events rather than responding, always immediately and emotionally firing back. They are like um, Wild Bill Hickok, who in a gunfight whirled and shot and killed his own deputy who had come running up from behind him calling out that he was there to help. <laughs> Wisdom tells us the difference between responding and reacting. It teaches us the art of love. So when Paul tells us to walk in love, to order our lives and relationships in a loving way, he knows that that will itself require a good deal of wisdom. It takes wisdom to see the difference between neurotic need and love. Wisdom is knowing what is good and how to apply that knowledge to everyday life. When wisdom enters the heart, says Proverbs 2.9, what is right and just and fair? Every good path is known. In their earliest history, the Hebrews were nomads. And after their escape from Egypt, uh, they were again for 40 years wandering desert nomads, embedded in their genes, so to speak. 
certainly in their thinking and language, is the importance of knowing the right way, what we call righteousness. The straightest, most direct, best, and safest way to the next large oasis with pasture and water for their flocks and herds and for themselves. For them, following the wrong path, unrighteousness could be fatal in the severity of the desert. Proverbs also emphatically states the fear of the Lord as a fundamental principle of wisdom. So Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There simply is not time to provide a full explanation of this verse, but I think it is important to note that for the Hebrews, the fear of the Lord didn't mean a feeling of dread or anxiety or panic uh, because they thought God cruel and capricious. But it meant something more like living life with an awareness that, as Paul himself, a Hebrew, put it, in God we live, move, and have our being. Notice that the second part of this verse of Proverbs 9.10 says, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. An experiential, uh, an experiential awareness of God's presence. Knowing God as God is, that is the beginning. That is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is practical. Wisdom in the Old Testament is sometimes even thought of as a craft or uh, uh, as a skill, someone who does fine needlework or intricate wood carving is said to possess wisdom of heart in the Old Testament. A person who possesses vast knowledge of natural processes and knows how to apply that knowledge possesses wisdom. Instead of compasses, Bedouin nomads use sand dunes that were shaped by the wind to determine direction. If you are going to find the right way in the desert, wisdom is necessary. If you're going to find the right path through life, the path that leads to life, life that really is life, wisdom is a necessary requisite. The most perplexing, troubling, and intractical problems we face, admit to no easy solution. And no matter how much we think or worry about them, our most difficult questions and problems very seldom lend themselves to unambiguous, clear, definitive answers. Most often their solution is of a different sort a change in our attitude or in our perspective. Even moral and ethical decisions cannot always be given easy yes or no answers. Just read Matthew 12, 1 through 14. Wisdom is a gift of God, but it is a gift God gives as we practice it. Spiritual progress 
lies in the struggle and in the quest for God's um, uh, because um, the, the, the quest for God is synonymous is what I want to say. The quest for God is synonymous with the quest for wisdom. Doesn't scripture say Christ is our wisdom? Another aspect of chirotic existence is the practice of the will of God. Wisdom is integral to chirotic existence, and the will of God is, is essential to chirotic existence. Paul therefore writes in Ephesians 5.17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of God, and this cannot be overemphasized, has nothing to do, again, with harsh, pointless, capricious, or joyless rules and demands. The will of God is simply God's kind intention, God's desire, God's good plan for humanity. God's will is that in my life, in the life of everyone on earth, that in the whole world there is love, peace, joy, justice, mercy, kindness, and everything that is truly good. Since God's will has often been revealed in dreams and visions, God's will can be thought of as God's dream for all of us. God's dream for us is right there in Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. <coughs> Like a branch that sprouts from a stump. <laughs> Let me say that again. Like a branch that sprouts from a stump. Someone from David's family will someday be king. The Spirit of the Lord will be with him to give him understanding, wisdom, and insight. He will be powerful and he will know and honor the Lord. The greatest joy will be for him to obey the Lord. This king won't judge by appearances or listen to rumors. The poor and the needy will be treated with fairness. And with justice, his word will be law everywhere in the land. Honesty and fairness will be his royal robes. Leopards will lie down with young goats and wolves will rest with lambs. Calves and lions will eat together and be cared for by little children. Cows and bears will share the same pasture. Their young will rest side by side. Lions and oxen will both eat straw. Little children will play near snake holes. They will stick their hands into dens of poisonous snakes and never be hurt. Nothing harmful will take place on the Lord's holy mountain. Just as water fills the sea, the land will be filled with people who know and honor the Lord. You may have seen this prophetic image from Isaiah envisioned in the famous Peaceable Kingdom paintings of Edward Hicks, which are among the most widely celebrated icons of American folk art today. If you are trying to determine just what the will of God may be for your life, you may find the simple 
paradigm Leslie Weatherhead suggested in his book, The Will of God, first published in 1946, helpful. Weatherhead distinguished between the intentional, circumstantial, and ultimate will of God. The intentional will of God means God's ideal desire for the whole universe, God's desire for peace, joy, justice, and goodness to prevail at all times and in all places. The circumstantial will of God is the will of God within the circumstance in which we find ourselves. It is not God's intentional will that anyone suffer unfairly or unjustly. But sometimes people inflict great pain and anguish on others. The question then becomes for the suffering, what is God's will for me in this situation? Is the answer to wait for an opportunity for revenge to present itself? Or is it to curl up in a fetal position and die? What if someone discovers they have terminal cancer and have less than six months to live? What is the will of God for them in that circumstance? Boris Kornfeld was arrested during the Stalin regime and sent as a political prisoner to the Russian gulag deep in Siberia. Because he was a certified surgeon, he was put to work as a doctor in the prison infirmary. There, Kornfeld met another prisoner who was a Christian. Kornfeld was fascinated by this man's quiet faith and his frequent reciting of the Lord's Prayer by his gentleness. One day, while performing surgery, repairing the artery of a guard who had been knifed during a fight, Kornfeld seriously considered suturing this hated guard's artery in such a way that the guard would slowly bleed to death. Kornfeld was appalled that he would entertain such thoughts, that he was capable of thinking such things, and he found himself repeating over and over the words he had heard from the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As a result of that experience, Kornfeld became a Christian, repeating the Lord's Prayer often and focusing on the wrongs in his own life rather than those in others. Even his enemies. It was common in the prison for guards who worked in the infirmary to steal the bread of patients for themselves or to steal it and sell it. One day, although it placed him in danger, Cornfield reported a guard who had stolen a dying patient's meager rations. Sometime later, as he hid in a linen closet to sleep, he was beaten to death with a plasterer's mallet. I cannot read this story without thinking about the wisdom needed and the consecration required um, to the will of God in order to follow the Christian path. The third piece in Weatherhead's model is God's ultimate or God's providential will, which is simply a way of saying that nothing, absolutely nothing, can defeat God's final purpose. God works with everything, including our human freedom, 
to accomplish his final aim of uniting all things in heaven and on earth in the love of Christ. So St. Paul writes in Romans 8, 38 through 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I think is this, no life can be counted as a success that is not lived for something time and circumstances cannot destroy. Here in Ephesians 5, Paul gives, in addition to wisdom and the will of God, a third dynamic of this chirotic existence. In verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The idea is that the Christian should not live as those who don't know what Scripture says or who ignore it, but rather thoughtfully as those whose lives are being shaped by the Word. So verse 18, They should not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh, Many ancient religions used alcohol uh, intoxication in an effort to achieve an altered, uh, an ecstatic state of consciousness. But in the end, Ephesians says, rather than leading up to enlightenment or genuine spiritual experience, it terminates in mere debauchery and personal debasement and intellectual, moral, physical, and spiritual deterioration. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That is, be guided, directed, shaped by the Spirit, particularly as it speaks in the depths of your heart, in and through the Word. Speaking, verse 19, he goes on to say, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Mulholland comments on verse 19 like this. says, I have difficulty picturing the Christian community as the local opera guild. I believe that Paul meant chirotic existence as a way of life in the world in which our lives become harmonious for others, a nurturing harmony in the lives of others. I'll close this meditation with this brief question. It is from Eugene Peterson's little book on the Psalms of Ascent, which he borrowed from, of all people, Frederick Nietzsche, who said with perfect insight, and remember in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, to obey means to listen. So uh, Nietzsche, whom uh, Eugene Peterson quotes, said, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience, a long listening in the same direction that thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living.